Welcome to the Buford Sermons Podcast, where we care about the things you care about. For more information or to donate to this ministry, please visit www.fbcbuford.org. Amen, church. If he's worthy this morning, can you give him a hand clap of praise? Amen. Amen. If you will take your seats and open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 5. This morning, Pastor Jared will be speaking about growth from from chapter 5, verses 11, all the way to chapter 6, verse 3. And that scripture reads, We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear for you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, laying on the hands in the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. May the Lord add a blessing to the hearers and doers of his word. We're in a series entitled, We Care, because we want to talk about the values that drive us as a church. What do we expect of one another here in the fellowship in order to ensure that we're living up to the mission that God has for us in this community? Uh, several weeks ago, uh, we, Pastor Stephen opened up this series of We Care by talking about the fact that we are a family and we care about each other. Then we had Jumpstart. Then we had Snow. Then we had a great message from J.J. Washington uh, last week. And so I've been working on this message for a long time. So if you're going to judge me on a message, you might ought to judge me on this one. Because if it's not any good, I've had far too much time to prepare it. So <laughs> this week we're going to talk about the important value of discipleship. Because we care about growth. You know, life goes by entirely too fast, doesn't it? It seems like it never stops moving. Nicole, my wife and I, Nicole, who is my wife, and I, were <laughs> sitting at home late at night the other night, and of course with me by late I mean 8.30, and um, we were looking at some of her old Instagram stories, and, and one of her Instagram stories popped up, and it was my daughter Dylan, who's almost three. It was the first time that she laughed. And we just watched, and you know, you get teary-eyed watching that kind of stuff. And so uh, we were just thinking about how fast time goes by. And that's really important for us to remember. You know, I think about that Kenny Chesney song, you know. He says, don't blink, just like that. You're six years old and you take a nap. Wake up and you're 25. Your high school sweetheart becomes your wife. You know it. First service didn't get that, but I just thought of it, and so I'll throw it in there. But it's true, isn't it? It was popular because it's true. Don't blink or it'll go past you. The thing I want us to remember is that, you know, every moment that passes is a moment that puts us just a little bit closer to eternity. 
And here's what I want us to think about. If we're always growing closer to the end of this life, if time always grows, but our intimacy with God and our knowledge of the scriptures is stagnant, then what's happening? Well, what's happening is we're constantly falling farther and farther behind because time is moving on without us. So what we see is that if our faith and our knowledge of Scripture is stagnant, then we're never actually standing still when it comes to our faith. We're falling farther and farther behind. So what we learn is that our faith is never truly stagnant. We are either growing or we are regressing. We're either progressing or we are regressing. There's no just standing still when it comes to your faith. Now, this is not meant to shame anybody for where you are today. I was telling a friend just this past week, no point worrying about or reflecting on or harping on what you shoulda, coulda, woulda, right? The place we can start is today. And I do want to encourage you to get moving with regards to your faith today. Because the first thing I want us to see is that we have an imperative to grow. We have an imperative to grow. And Luther read Hebrews chapter 4 to us just a moment ago. And I'd love to throw it back up there. Because the author of Hebrews tells us that there are many who were actually saved, who have repented of their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ, who should be able to be teachers by this point. But not only are they not teachers, but they're still spiritual infants. Maturity in your faith and knowledge of the Word of God is crucial. Because did you see what the fruits of maturity are? Look in verse number 14. It says, But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Maturity in your faith, knowledge of the Word of God, growing in Christ is vital for what? For being able to distinguish good from evil. That's pretty big, isn't it? Have you ever wondered why some people, and maybe at times, if we're honest, us, have you ever wondered why so many people claim to be believers but support things that are clearly evil in the sight of God? Well, one reason is because they may say they're a believer, but they're not actually a believer. They may say, I've trusted in Jesus, but there's never really been any life change in their heart. They've never committed their life to him. They've never submitted their life to him. So that's possible, that somebody's claiming to be a believer in Christ Jesus, but they actually are not. He's more of like a good luck charm than a savior. But the other possibility that we see here in Hebrews chapter 5 is this. Maybe they really are saved, but they're not growing in their faith. They're not growing in teaching about righteousness. They're still stuck on the elementary truths. All they know is Jesus died and rose again, and I've trusted in him. And you have to start there. You can't go any farther if you haven't started there. But the Word teaches us that we should be interested in the entire counsel of God's Word, the whole counsel of God's Word, moving past just the elementary truths of God's Word into 
mature teaching about righteousness. We should be looking at the whole word of God and asking, what do you have for me through your word, Lord? Now, there are some people that have been a believer for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, but they're still an infant. Can you imagine if this happened physically? Just a couple of weeks ago, my son, who's nine months old, uh, he's not progressing quite as fast as my daughter did, uh, but he's real sweet, and so we love him. <laughs> he's got a big old head, too, but, but he, he ain't got a tooth in his head, and he's nine months old. His daughter, his daughter, my daughter, his sister, whoo, y'all, okay. His sister had teeth when she was four months old. He's not quite as fast as she is, but the other day, he held his bottle while he ate for the first time. And if you're a parent, you'll know how transformative this is in your life. Because you just sit him down there, hand him the bottle, and you can, you know, keep the other one from falling off of something. <laughs> but when he did that the other day, we just ooed and awed and praised him and told him what a good boy he was. And, oh, he just got showered with love because he was drinking out of that bottle by himself for the first time. But can you imagine a 30-year-old still living on formula milk? We wouldn't ooh and ah and say, oh, what a good boy you are. It wouldn't be anything that we would celebrate. It would be something that we mourn. He ought to be way past that. And yet we live like this. Many of us live like this every single day when it comes to our faith. We're perfectly content sucking on that bottle when it comes to faith in Christ. You know, then there's other folks who have barely been a believer but a few years, and they're some of the most mature and wise believers that I know. I've got a friend who's only been a believer for a few years, and he teaches me something about faith in Christ every time we meet together. We absolutely care about growth here at FBC Buford. But I want to be very clear. I want to be clear about what we mean when we say growth because there's a lot of churches in our country and even in this immediate area who emphasize growth, but they emphasize it in areas such as business acumen or leadership skills or financial success. They've got preachers who... They're leading self-help seminars disguised as sermons. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a good leader or with taking care of your finances or with being a good business person. There's not a thing wrong with that. But God did not call me to preach leadership skills. God has called me to preach the inspired Word of God. Are, are there things in here that if you abide by them, they will make you more successful in business or leadership or finances or what have you? Of course there are. But that's not the role of the church or the goal of the believer. We're to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, it will have a trickle-down effect in the rest of the areas of our lives. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 says, But seek First, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. 
Have you ever heard the statement, aim at nothing and you're going to hit nothing? Well, when you make the aim of your life temporary things that are here today and gone tomorrow, you're aiming at nothing. And therefore, you're going to hit nothing. But if you aim the focus of your life at Jesus Christ, who is, was, and will forever be, he will never change, he will never move, he will always be there. If you aim at him, then the rest of your life will fall into place. The rest of the categories of your life will take care of themselves if you are focused on pursuing him. So we have an imperative to grow. The Bible tells us we must grow as believers. But not only that, we have an inspiration to grow. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14 says, But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it. And how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, there's a big push today, both in culture and unfortunately even in the church, in some Christian circles, that say that the Bible is out of date. They say that it, the Old Testament is irrelevant or full of errors and contradictions or that the Apostle Paul's letters only applied to his own time period and that his conclusions on issues of culture are no longer necessary or relevant. Now, I don't have time to address all of these concerns today. I don't have time to address every uh, possible issue that someone could raise with the text of Scripture. But what I am here to tell you is this. I believe with all of my heart in the perfection, in the inerrancy, in the full truth of God's Word. I'm going to give you just a couple of things. I want to give you just a couple of little tidbits of information that hopefully will just whet your appetite to explore more of these mysteries of the Word of God because I want you to know that the Bible is reliable. If, we're going to, if this is going to be our inspiration for growth and we're going to base everything we do on it, then we better be very certain that it's reliable. First thing I want you to know, let me tell you this. Some of this content that I'm about to share with you is from one of my favorite books, called What Every Christian Ought to Know by Dr. Adrian Rogers. I'd encourage you to pick it up and read it. It will really help you in your faith. But the first thing I want to share with you is that the Bible is scientifically true. Our culture often pits science against the Bible as if the Bible is for primitive-minded Neanderthals and the scientists, well, you know, they've got it all figured out. I remember in my undergraduate work, my undergraduate degree is in biology and I had an evolution class for that degree and I walked or I sat down in my seat in that class and the professor comes in and he says I know we're in the south and I know there's probably a lot of y'all that are religious but I want you to know that whatever you believe about creation or any of those things that's faith and we're not here to study faith we're here to study science so so religion is faith and science is fact that's what he said so I don't want to hear anything about creation in this class. Well, that was his prerogative. It was his classroom. I honored it. Had a few conversations in his office with him. 
and good-hearted. They was light-hearted. We had a good relationship. But the longer I sat in that class, the more I realized that it takes just as much, if not more, faith to believe in the accidental nature of the origins of the universe as it does to believe in God. See, both atheistic and Christian points of view on the origins of the universe require faith. They both require faith. The difference is that the Christian point of view has, as its chief proponent, someone who lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose again, was seen by up to 500 people at one time, could pass through walls, ascended into the sky... That's the chief proponent of the position that I hold. Who's the chief proponent of their position? Somebody that's going to be wrong every single day. Let me be clear to say that the Bible is not a science book. If you were teaching biology, you would not pull this thing out to teach your cellular biology class. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that when it speaks on issues of science... It is absolutely accurate. The ancient Greeks, who were some of the most brilliant and insightful thinkers in the history of the world, believed that the earth was held up by a giant named Atlas. The Hindus believed that the world sat on the backs of giant elephants. But the Bible says in the book of Job 26-7... God spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. Now, Job is one of the oldest books in recorded history. How could Job possibly know? When you walk out of these doors and you look up into the sky, if you didn't already know it, would there be anything empirical that would tell you that the earth is a ball suspended in space? No. So how did Job know this? Because the scripture is the inspired word of God. That's how he knew. The Holy Spirit told him. We're all familiar with the fact that as late as 1492, people believed the earth was flat. There are still some people out there that believe the earth is flat. And Lord help them. If you're a flat earther, don't be mad at me. Please come talk to me after the service. I would love to understand your position. But in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22, the Bible says, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. That word circle could be interpreted sphere. He sits enthroned above the sphere of the earth. Now again, I'll I'll say it again. How in the world could Isaiah in about 750 B.C. know that the earth is a sphere? He couldn't unless the Holy Spirit told him. The Bible is the inspired word of God. The Bible's historically true, but it's all, I'm sorry, it's scientifically true. Oh man, I gave away my next point. Okay. There goes that transition line. Okay, the Bible is, is scientifically true, but it's also historically true. Through the years, many have raised questions about the historical accuracy of the Bible. How could we base our faith on a book that is untrue in its recollection of events? Now, just as with science, it's the Bible's primary function is not to be a history book. And it's important to recognize the different types of literature in the Bible, whether it be poetic or wisdom literature, such as the Proverbs, or prophetic literature, or narrative. 
If somebody's using a metaphor in the scriptures, we should not take that as a history lesson. Okay? We read it with common sense. We read it with the intent of the original author in mind. But when the Bible speaks about specific people or specific events in history, it is accurate. There's a story in the book of Daniel about a king named Belshazzar. Somebody came up to me after the first service and said it's actually Belshazzar. Well, tomato, tomato. I just like saying Belshazzar better. Belshazzar, according to the Bible, was an evil king of Babylon. And because of this evil, there appeared a mysterious hand writing on the wall that told him that he had been weighed in the balance and been found wanting. Belshazzar was scared to death by this, of course, so he called on Daniel to interpret this message for him. Now, for years, this story was referenced as a falsehood in Scripture. It was previously thought that the last king of Babylon was Nabonidus. So you have the Bible saying that the last king of Babylon was Belshazzar, and then you have the common historical record saying that the last king of Babylon was Nabonidus. Historians claim that this story was completely fabricated, and they used it to refute the historical accuracy of the Bible. But then one day, an archaeologist uncovered a cylinder, and on it was the name Belshazzar. And after this discovery, what they eventually found out through the historical record is that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. But Belshazzar was his son, and they ruled together. Now let me point out one thing, because... Somebody caught me on it in the first service, and I just want to address it so nobody's confused. In Daniel chapter 5 and verse 2, it says that Belshazzar was the, or excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar was the father of Belshazzar, not Nabonidus was the father of Belshazzar. Well, that word in chapter 5 means predecessor or ancestor. So all the writer is doing here is connecting Belshazzar to Nebuchadnezzar and showing you how the lineage that that because chapter 4 is speaking about Nebuchadnezzar and chapter 5 is speaking about Belshazzar and so they're bridging that gap and making a connection because they're covering uh, quite a bit of time in between chapter 4 and chapter 5. So don't let that confuse you. But what they found out from the historical record is that Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus. And Nabonidus was a big game hunter. And when Nabonidus was away, Belshazzar performed the function of king. So what was called a historical inaccuracy for years and years, what we found out is that the historical record just had to catch up with what the Bible already said. And actually, if we read the story with this information in mind, it it shows us that this information was clear all along. In Daniel chapter 5 and verse 7, it says, The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now, why would the king say, if he was giving away uh, so much power, why would the king say that he would give him the third place in the kingdom? Well, because he was the second place in the kingdom. That's the best he could give. 
So what we see is that the historical record said one thing, the scholars said one thing, and the Bible said something else, and wouldn't you know, the Bible was right all along. See, the Bible's not a science book or a history book. However, if all Scripture is God-breathed, then we should expect that when it chooses to speak on either of these topics, it's accurate. There are, of course, many people who study the Bible looking for inconsistencies. They doubt the Bible because it's hard to imagine that 66 books written by 40 different authors over a 1,600-year time span could possibly be unified in its message and accurate in its recollection of events. But it is. Questions will always be raised, but all who have stood against the Bible throughout the years are no longer speaking, and the Bible is still speaking today. So when, we, when our understanding clashes with what the Bible says, we better assume that we're wrong and not the Scriptures. Otherwise, either us or our legacy will be embarrassed when human knowledge catches up with what the Bible has already said. Now, the Bible is our inspiration for growth, and it can be trusted both scientifically and historically. I wanted you to see that. I wanted you to get just a taste of the things that can be verified by the Scriptures. But those things are not the primary reason that the Bible exists, and it's not the primary reason why we trust the Bible as our inspiration. The primary reason that we rely on the Bible for growth is that the Bible is spiritually transformative. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions, attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Do you see the personification here when it speaks about the Word of God? It says it's alive and it's active. It's sharp. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions, the attitudes of the heart. Now, how can a word, how can a book judge anybody? Because it is God-breathed. See, in 2 Timothy, when we just read that passage, it says that the, all Scripture is God-breathed. That word, God-breathed, calls us back all the way to creation when God breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam. And just like God breathed the breath of life into Adam, he also breathed the breath of life into his word. And when we read his word and we abide in his word and we seek his truth, he will breathe the breath of life into us. There's a lot of good books that have done a lot of good things. But there's only one book about which it can be said, it's a lie. As I've said before, there's a lot of books that you can read, but there's only one book that can read you. What does that mean? It means that when you read the Word of God, it begins to reveal your weaknesses and your strengths. It speaks to your problems in a relevant way. It opens your eyes to the mess that's around you and in you. When you read the Word of God with a sincere heart, it... it, it it's like having a deep conversation with your closest friend who you know intimately and has just the right word of encouragement or rebuke for your situation. It's your ticket to knowing God. If you say, I want to know God more. I want to abide with Christ. I want to have a life that honors God. You have to start here. 
This is how he's speaking to you. Now, I know what some would say at this point. Well, I've read the Bible, and it didn't do anything particularly special for me. It just, I mean, I read it. I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me, and so I just don't read it. Well, let me caution you with something. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 says that the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. An unbeliever, if you've never repented of your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ, but you're trying to, 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 um, to get wisdom from this book, you're not going to be able to. An unbeliever can read God's word, and you, sure, you can understand that Jesus did many miracles, that he died on the cross, and that he rose again. You can understand that factually. They can understand it from a historical and a social perspective, but you cannot understand it from a spiritual perspective until you put your trust in Jesus Christ. You can understand it in an explanatory way, but not in an experiential way. I want you to imagine that you're walking down the street one day and you see a post-it note laying on the ground and you bend over and you grab it, you, you open it up and on it, it says, I love you. Now, you're just walking along, along randomly. You, you saw it on the ground. You don't see anybody around. You've got this random piece of paper in your hand that says, I love you. Does that make you feel any particular way? I mean, does it make you feel fuzzy inside no probably not are you going to take it home and frame it are you going to call all your friends and say somebody loves me I highly doubt it you're probably just going to throw it in the trash right but now I want you to imagine that you wake up one morning and you roll over and on your pillow there's a post-it note and you pick it up you open it and it says I love you but this time it's in your spouse or your child's handwriting. It's the same paper, it's the same words, but I have a feeling it would hit just a little bit different, wouldn't it? You might want to frame that. You might want to keep it. You might want to call your friend and say, do you know what my precious baby did for me this morning? It'll mean something to you. Why? Not because of the paper, not because of just the words, but it's because you know, you love, and you trust the author. And you know it was meant for you. When you read the Bible with the understanding that the author of the Bible died for you, he rose again, and he's still working in the world today, that helps you to know, to love, and to trust the author and you can know that it was written just for you. When you know those things and you read the scriptures, it causes it to hit just a little bit differently than it would if you were reading it arbitrarily or to check off some list. When you read the scriptures out of your love for Jesus and a desire to know him more, they will transform you and they will solidify your purpose. So God has given us an imperative to grow. He's given us an inspiration to grow. But now the question may be, how do I put this into practice? What do I do with the scripture once I've read it? I want you to know we've got an image to follow. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of God the Father. 
What does that mean? It means that anything that we want to know about God, what is his character, how does he love, what, what are his chief concerns, if we want to know those things about God, we can see it in the image of Christ. He's the image. He's the, he's the person in the Godhead that we can see. And so, with that in mind, I want to ask you, do you remember the account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by the devil? I want us to use that image of Christ in the wilderness to look at how we use the Word of God to deal with temptation. Matthew chapter 4, verse 5 says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift, up, lift you up in their hands, and you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now there's two things I want you to see in this passage. First of all, Satan knows the Scriptures as well as anybody in this room, and probably better. And he will take the scriptures out of context, and he'll twist them all up into a pretzel to try to convince you of just about anything that you'll deal with in this world. He knows the scriptures, but so does Jesus. What's the difference between the two? It's clear that just knowing what it says is not enough. So what's the difference? Well, we see it in Jesus. Because Jesus knows the scriptures, but he has one added value. Jesus has a spirit of submission. You have, see, it's not just enough to know what the Bible says. We have to submit to what the Bible says. We have to have the attitude that even when I don't understand, even when it doesn't make sense to me, I'm going to submit my life to this truth. And when we read the scriptures with that kind of a mindset, when we read the scriptures that way, that's when we experience real transformation in our lives. If you're reading the Bible just to find out how you can justify a predetermined position that you want to hold, that's not going to help you grow. If you're reading the word hastily without also asking God to guide you as you read, that's not going to help much either. We must read the word with a spirit of submission to God, and then, and only then, will we grow. If you're going to be faithful and wise in the face of hardship, you need the word of God engraved on your heart. You can't defeat Satan and temptation with your own strength for two reasons. First... Like we read in Hebrews, if you're not maturing in your faith, you may not even be able to see when you're being tempted. Because, again, your ability to distinguish good from evil is stunted. But secondly, even if you do recognize that you're being tempted, if you're not in the Word, then you're not going to have the weapons to fight that battle. So, I want to encourage you in two ways. First, individually. If you've never done this, it's, it's a helpful practice. Sit down, get quiet, and prayerfully consider what are your greatest temptations. Do you struggle with fear, anger, greed, lust, whatever it is? Search the Word of God for scriptures that speak to that issue. Make sure they speak to that issue. 
If you need help with that, you can always reach out to, uh, to one, of, one of your pastors. You can reach out to a small group leader. You can reach out to somebody. Find that community that can help you uh, determine those scriptures. Make sure they apply to your situation. But once you find them, write down those scriptures. And then take a week and memorize those scriptures. So that when you encounter those temptations, you'll have the weapons to fight it. When the temptations arise, you'll have the, just the right scripture to fight that battle in that time. But second of all, with regards to what we are doing as a church to help you grow in your faith, we root everything we do in God's word. In our kids' ministry, our student ministry, our adult ministries, we constantly ask the question, is the word of God the focus? We want kids to have fun, but more than that, we want them to know God's word and how to apply it to their lives. The same goes for every age group. We have Sunday morning life groups that foster community and study, and we've just introduced just last semester, and we've got new ones coming up, lead groups that are groups that meet throughout, all, throughout the week at all different times for men and for women, and they're smaller groups, and you get to dive into the scriptures together, and it's transformative in community. Ultimately, if you want to grow, you got to get in the Word. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Train yourselves to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Several years ago, I had this video camera, and it started messing up on me, and I called the help desk, and they tried to convince me that it was the batteries, and so I changed out the batteries. That didn't work, and so I called them back, and they said, oh, we know you need this specific type of batteries. So I ordered these batteries, and they came in, and I switched them out again, and it still didn't work. So finally, I just sent the thing to them, and they called me back, and they said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but the motherboard is fried on this thing. There's nothing we can do, and it's out of warranty. Well, I was upset about that video camera, but let me tell you something. Many of us have issues in our lives for which we're just switching out the batteries. We're trying to make a little change over here. We're trying to make a little change over here. But those changes can only be made based on our perception. And those changes are being made based on what we think about tomorrow. But what God wants us to understand is that our biggest problem, this sin problem that we have, it's not a battery change issue. It's a motherboard issue. And until you submit your life to Jesus Christ, and He gives you a new motherboard, Till he makes you new. Till he makes you a new creation. It's only at that point that your real problem can begin to be addressed. So don't focus on changing little behavioral things that you think are going to make your life better. Just give up and submit to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And when you do that, he will speak to you and he will change your life in an incredible way. I just want to ask you this, based on 1 Timothy chapter 4. Are you training for tomorrow? Or are you training for eternity? 
Are you training your kids for tomorrow? Or are you training them for eternity? Think about that. Because we care about growth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the spirit that's here. I thank you for every person that's in the room today. Pray that if there are those who do not know you as Savior and Lord, that they'd come to know you. Father, for those that do, would you ignite our hearts with a fresh hunger for your word? If we are a church that values your word above all else, then we will be a church that makes a difference for the gospel. Lord, help us to be that. In Jesus' name, amen. It's very simple today. You've, been, you've heard God's word, and we believe that you should have opportunity to respond to God's word. And so just a couple of questions. One, have you surrendered to the word of God? To the truth in the word of God, have you surrendered to the author of the word of God? Surrendered to the reality that you are a broken sinner, you're a mess on your own, you can't clean it up on your own. And the only way that you can serve the purpose God created you for is by acknowledging your sin, trusting in Christ, the God of the Bible, what Jesus did, what it was said in his word that he did, that he came, he was born, he lived, he died, he rose, and today he calls you to repent and follow him. If you need to trust in Christ because you've never done that before, we invite you to do that this morning. I'll be standing here worshiping this morning, you can come tap me on the shoulder and I'd love to have that conversation with you. Our pastors will be in the back after the service. We'd love to have that conversation with you. Or you can text that word Buford Info to that number 97000 and follow the prompts there that you need to trust Christ. And we'll get that and we'll begin that conversation. We'd love to point you to what it means to trust and follow Christ. For some of you, there's areas in your life or there's understandings in your life that contradict the word of God. Maybe you need to search your heart what are some areas in my life? What are some behaviors or what are some of the understandings that contradict the word of God? Where do I need to allow God to change my heart? Maybe you need to pray. Maybe right where you are, you need to worship. Some of you need to respond this morning simply by con committing to be a part of a lead group. I'm not growing in God's word on my own. I need other people to help me with that. I want to be a part of a lead group. I need that to be a starting place for me. So as soon as the service ends, you need to go straight to that information desk. You need to find those options, and you need to find the one that works for you. We got 6 o'clock in the morning options, 7.30 in the morning options, evening options. You need to go find that option that works for you, and you need to commit to being a part of a group of men or a group of women who study God's Word together. Some of you need to commit this morning to be a part of a church that believes the Word and that stands on the Word. You need to be a part of First Baptist Buford. You need to be a part of our community, our family here. You can do that by texting that number or you can just come let us know and we can talk with you about what that means. Either way, a lot of you in the room this morning and some of you watching online need to respond and we pray that you respond in obedience. Our desire is not that we just have a bunch of people who show up and hear me and Pastor Jared. We pray you enjoy hearing us. We pray that, that that's good for you. But our prayer is that we have a church of people who are growing in the word together. Boys, girls, students, men and women who are growing in the word of God. Would you commit to be a part of that this morning? Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. You worship, you move, you text, you go see whoever you need to see as we worship God. I thank you for this day, for who you are. Help us be obedient to you in these moments. I thank you for Pastor Jared. I thank you for the truth this morning. God, I pray that you would just use it to impact hearts in a way that only you can. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You be obedient. We hope that you have been blessed and challenged by this message. If you have questions, prayer requests, or want to know more about how to follow Jesus, 
please check us out at fbcbuford.org.